0: Snuff production. So one of the biggest stories of the week has been the Liberal Party division on the Indigenous voice to Parliament. A short time ago, I resigned as Shadow Attorney-General and Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians. So that was an important moment on Wednesday when the Liberal Party's own Indigenous affairs spokesperson, Julian Lisa, resigned from the Cabinet. He did that because he disagrees with the Federal Party's no position set out by the leader, Peter Dutton. So in this episode, we're going to speak to a young Liberal woman who's about to become a Member of Parliament. Her name is Jackie Munro, and she's an outspoken supporter of The Voice.
1: The position on The Voice, I believe, should be generous. And I think that that is part of the character of Australia, that we want this sense of fairness and generosity towards our fellow Australians.
0: So you'll find out why Jackie Munro supports The Voice, and whether she thinks this division at a federal level over The Voice is making her party even more unelectable to younger voters. That is our briefing. First, today's headlines with Katrina Blowers. It's Friday the 14th of April.
2: A 21-year-old man has been arrested over the Pentagon Papers leak in the U.S. We mentioned this earlier this week. So these are those highly classified documents containing intelligence assessments about the war in Ukraine, Russian intelligence, as well as sensitive information about other countries like South Korea and Israel. The suspect they've arrested is Jack Teixeira, a member of the intelligence wing of the Massachusetts Air National Guard.
3: Teixeira is an employee of the United States Air Force National Guard. FBI agents took Teixeira into custody earlier this afternoon without incident.
0: That's the U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland there. So, yeah, when we discussed this earlier this week, Katrina, I was wondering who the leaker would be. Um, This reminded me of the Chelsea Mm -hmm. Manning WikiLeaks episode. This appears quite different. This 21-year-old was part of an online group on the Discord app, uh, initially of around 20 people, And that's where the documents were leaked first. We don't know much about his motivation yet, but we're going to learn more now that he's been arrested. The Presbyterian Church is arguing their schools should be able to stop gay students or hetero students having sex outside of marriage from being school captains. It argues the students would not be able to give appropriate Christian leadership. Uh, The church operates 20 schools nationally, and some of them are very prestigious. This is part of a... Law Reform um, Commission discussion where they're seeking feedback on proposed laws that would limit the ability of religious schools to discriminate based on faith and the Presbyterian Church have made a submission to that commission.
2: Yeah, I mean this is at its heart really shocking and pretty gross, but it is still largely hypothetical uh, because according to the schools, it's not something the Presbyterian Church has ever asked them to police at any time when it comes to their students mm. or their staff. So in seeking feedback on these proposed new laws, how this has all come about is the Law Reform Commission posed a scenario that said that, okay, under these new laws, The schools that this church governs may no longer be able to refuse to accept a captain that's elected or appointed if they are, say, an LGBTQA plus student. And, I mean, schools like PLC, which is one of those really um, prestigious private schools, says that, look, the Presbyterian Church has never asked them to check on the Mm. sexual orientation of captains anyway. But, I mean, if you... Oh, I don't know, like if you ever leave even a chink in this legislation that allows for that, I don't think any parents, well, most parents hopefully wouldn't want that.
0: There's a strange dynamic here where a lot of the, the parents and students that are part of these schools, they go there for the quality of the education. They're very expensive schools. And a lot of those families are very progressive people, even though their kids are at religious schools. So then you step one step closer to the church, which you know, is is connected to the school but is not necessarily playing a huge part in their day-to-day operations and you get, I guess, a real divergence between what happens in reality and what the beliefs of the church might be that, you know, oversee the school.
2: Peter Dutton has travelled to Alice Springs where he's calling on the PM to step up action against crime.
0: That is a terrible situation and it wouldn't be tolerated in any other part of the country, certainly not in any capital city.
2: So Dutton's warning someone's going to get killed. He says people are locking themselves inside their homes at night to stay safe and that sexual and domestic violence is now a daily occurrence. Dutton's been critical of the Albanese government's response to crime in the area and he wants the Australian Federal Police brought in.
0: Yeah, so the Northern Territory Police Minister says Dutton's playing politics and that if he has any evidence of child sexual abuse, he needs to report it directly to police, which he hasn't done. Um, Clearly, violence is an issue in Alice Springs, but it is hard not to be cynical about the timing of it here and whether there is a political element. Um, Dutton was standing alongside his Indigenous senator, Justin Price, a local, in a week where his Indigenous Affairs Minister has resigned from Cabinet over The Voice. So there's a lot going on in this space for Dutton, uh, I think, beyond just the problems in Alice Springs. And we'll talk more about that in our briefing.
2: And Cyclone Ilsa has made landfall on WA's north coast. This is a Category 5 system, bringing the most destructive winds ever recorded in Australia. Wind gusts of almost 300 k's an hour. It's the kind of wind gust you hear about in the US with the tornadoes. Uh, the system has since downgraded to a Category 4 as it moves inland, though. Uh, supplies like food and fuel have been sent to remote areas, with people being advised to stock up on water and take shelter.
0: Yeah, so the eye of the storm made landfall in a very remote area, which is good, but it's only a few hours from the town of Port Headland with 15,000 people. Um, They're under a yellow alert, which means people have to be ready to go to shelter. And Harry Potter is getting a reboot... 12 years after the final movie of the original saga was released. So this new Harry Potter TV series will be launched on the Warner Brothers Max streaming service. Each book is set to become its own series. And it will be a decade-long production with J.K. Rowling as the executive producer on the project. And we actually just happen to have a Harry Potter expert right here in the Briefing Studio, <laughs> our producer, Eleanor. <laughs> what do you make of this? Will this be a good series?
4: Yeah, look, I don't know. I it's, I, I I feel like it's milking it um, because I just feel like you leave, yeah. it, leave it at least one more decade. But, yeah, like the post-Harry Potter, like after the, the final movie came out, like the sort of post-Harry Potter sort of stuff that they've come out with, um, like the Cursed Child play, that's been going really, really well, and uh, Hogwarts Legacy that just came out earlier this year, that's been going fantastically, the video game. But, I mean, it's also kind of like the Fantastic Beast franchise was not quite so successful because it sort of was going to be five movies and then the fourth movie is just sort of in limbo and we don't know if it's going to be made or not because it sort of kept making less money. And then there's a bit of the sort of controversy with J.K. Rowling about her sort of um, yes. position on trans people. And with that, I don't know how much it would affect this new series, but it was enough for her to not be featured on the Harry Potter 20th Anniversary Reunion episode, which did feature Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grint, and Watson, who were the original Harry, Ron and Hermione. Mm.
0: Mm. Very mixed feelings by the sounds of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll still watch it though, won't you?
4: Of course.
0: <laughs> all right, catch you all later. I'm about to go deep on where the Liberal Party is at on The Voice.
3: I had to weigh up uh, my love of the Liberal Party and its values and what it stands for against a stubborn position of not wanting to give Aboriginal people a seat at the table. So when I weighed all that up, it became a position where I didn't even tell my wife, I just sent the message off to the Liberal Party saying that I forthwith resign uh, my membership because I uh, wanted to fight for The Voice, because this is something we've asked for over many decades.
0: Those comments are another serious blow to the Liberal Party. That is Ken Wyatt. Now, he quit the Liberal Party, as you could hear, over its opposition to The Voice. Now, that's a big deal because when he was an MP, he was the first ever Indigenous person to be the Indigenous Affairs Minister, and now he's cut all ties with the party. So along with the news we mentioned about Julian Lisa resigning from Shadow Cabinet, that means the most recent and the former Indigenous Affairs Ministers for the Liberal Party are outspokenly critical of the current party's opposition to The Voice. And all this comes after a series of election losses that have demonstrated that the Liberal Party is not appealing to younger voters. So is this division and opposition to The Voice going to make the Liberal Party even less appealing to younger voters? Jackie Munro has an interesting perspective on all of these questions. She's a 32-year-old bisexual Liberal Party member who's about to become a Member of Parliament in New South Wales. Their Upper House seat is yet to be officially declared, but it's almost guaranteed. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us on the briefing. You're about to come into the New South Wales Parliament at a very interesting time. Your party, the Liberal Party, has been having... A very rough time at the ballot box, the recent Aston by-election at a federal level, the loss in New South Wales, you'll be in opposition. And of course, um, the massive defeat of the Morrison government last year. How are you feeling about the state of the party that you love? I'm
1: really excited about the future. And I think at the moment, we need to make sure we're listening to our constituents. We really need to put in a lot of effort to going out in our communities and understanding where we weren't resonating. I personally wouldn't characterise the New South Wales loss as um, any sort of landslide, to be honest. The Labor Party are going to have to govern in minority government Mm. and that's because we retained, obviously, enough seats to, to make that happen and we have some fantastic new talent coming through the party.
0: So the analysis we got here on the briefing after the loss in Aston um, was that millennial and Gen Z voters are more progressive than their parents and they're making up a much bigger part of the electorate now, so big that they can't be ignored. If you ignore them, you'll probably have the fate that the federal government's suffering at the moment. So given the need to appeal to that part of the electorate, how do you feel about your party's stance on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament? Is it going against what the party actually needs to do to win younger voters?
1: I believe there needs to be a distinction between the state parliament or the state government or the state party and the federal party. So the Liberal Party is made up of state divisions, so the New South Wales Liberal Party is actually quite separate to the federal parliamentary team that exists and the stance that the federal parliamentary team has decided to take is not necessarily reflective of other Liberal mm. Party divisions. I think there are many diverse voices from the Liberal Party that are speaking up and sharing their views, which is valuable.
0: Yeah, so you've got the Tasmanian Premier, Jeremy Rockliffe, he supports it. Dom Perrottet, as he said, supported it. Um, Bridget Archer the WA Liberals are supporting the voice as well, but you are all attached to the same brand. So is the stance that Peter Dutton's taking, in your view, damaging the Liberal brand?
1: As leader of the the federal parliamentary team, it's his prerogative to represent the views of his parliamentary team and obviously what he thinks is representative of Liberal values more broadly. But again. I actually think that there is a clear distinction between the different divisions of the Liberal Party. And and we see that represented in the state election that's just happened versus the federal election.
0: The New South Wales Liberals were more progressive than the federal Liberals. That is clear. But you clearly disagree with Peter Dutton's position on The Voice. And before you got into Parliament, you wrote a big think piece about this in the New Daily. And you actually charted back to Robert Menzies and his position about spirituality in Australia, um, which sounds kind of quite ethereal, you know, to hear a Liberal Party leader speaking about, you know, spirituality, very different from where Peter Dutton's ended up. Why do you think Peter Dutton's made the wrong call on The Voice?
1: I'm actually glad that you brought up the spirituality aspect. I think it is critical to the character of the nation. And of course, we've just had um, Easter weekend, we... I've just had Passover and the month of Ramadan is still occurring. And I think this idea of spirituality and the character of Australia runs so deeply in all of us. The position on the voice, I believe, should be generous. And I think that that is part of the character of Australia, that we want this sense of fairness and generosity towards our fellow Australians. I think in making the decision to oppose the voice as it is, I I must say, I think it's a little premature. The committee, the parliamentary committee that is dealing with these issues is still ongoing. There will be public hearings. They have to report by the 15th of May on the types of research and feedback Mm. that they have received on this model. So I still think that there is such a big conversation to be had about what the voice actually looks like realistically and how it's implemented.
0: But you think he's not being generous, Peter Dutton, in, in rejecting the voice? And, you know, you talked about spirituality there. He keeps talking about his belief it won't make a practical difference, which Julian Lisa disagreed with. How do you feel about that argument that it, it can only be worth doing if it has direct links to closing the gap or, or on the ground real world outcomes and not just these, these broader questions that you've been talking about?
1: I think there are two elements of the voice conversation that maybe aren't separated enough. One is the principle and the second is the practicality. And those things, of course, exist in tandem, but those conversations are quite separate, I I believe. And when you look at the constitution as a pretty dry and prescriptive administrative document, it's not the place for floral language about how our nation's character should be thought about in a spiritual sense, but it does represent our values as a nation in a really direct way. So when Peter Dutton decided to make the announcement and and on behalf of his parliamentary team, of course, there were things that the parliamentary team agreed to, I guess in principle things about um, local and regional voice being relevant to the decision-making of government, but the decision to vote no and to work in the no campaign, I think, I mean, it's just not necessarily representative of, of other party members. And I think, again, the freedom of other party members to do what they wish in response to the voice and campaigning demonstrates the strength of the party. And that's where we can have a really useful and deep conversation.
0: But he could have given everyone a conscience vote. Like, Liberals like yourself will always, you know, whenever there's trouble in the party and different views that make the party look like it's in disarray, oh, we celebrate the diversity of the Liberal Party. But it's a shambles. You've got Peter Dutton saying one thing. You've got his Indigenous Affairs Minister, former now, saying something else. You've got Jacinta Price, an Indigenous senator, making a completely different argument based on race as to why the Constitution shouldn't be changed. To the general public, there's no clarity, there's no consensus, there doesn't seem to be any generosity or any real vision there. It actually just seems like a party divided.
1: Ultimately, we're a membership organisation, so we can't be anything without our members. We do hark back always to the views of the people who are paying their membership fees, who are standing on polling booths. Who are having conversations with their community groups and
0: But they believe, weren't in that meeting room last week with Peter Dutton when they decided on the federal party position.
1: That's right. And that's why we have this great tradition of a conscience vote. And that's something that obviously shadow ministers have have availed themselves of.
0: So it's not happening. There's there's not a conscience vote for everyone. Well you know, so doesn't that go against the the values that you're espousing?
1: For me, again, the strength of the party is in its membership base. It was always called a broad tent, a broad church, Mm. and that's valuable because we can talk about these issues from a values-based stance and continue to work together and to be civilised.
0: Jackie, great to speak to you. Thanks for joining us and good luck in the New South Wales Upper House.
1: Thank you so much, Tom.
0: That was Jackie Munro there. And as you could hear, she kept trying her best to celebrate the way Her party can accommodate different points of view on policy. But I think to younger voters, they're really looking at the federal politicians and the leader, Peter Dutton, and his opposition, and the division. And I don't think that's going to be very appealing at all. What will be interesting to watch is what happens over the next few months, how hard these yes campaigners go, um, how much tension that creates with the party, and of course the way we, the electorate, react. All right, tomorrow, keep an eye on your briefing podcast feed because the weekend briefing um, will be dropping in with Jamila Rizvi. Jamila, who are you interviewing this week?
3: This weekend, my guest is Kate Jenkins, who is the outgoing Sex Discrimination Commissioner. And look, normally on the weekend briefing, we're not up for chatting to, you know, a whole lot of government important figures. They're very important people, but we usually leave that to the weekday briefing. But Kate Jenkins is an exception because... She is finishing her seven-year term as sex discrimination commissioner, which means she has held the role through the Me Too movement, through the allegations of people like Brittany Higgins, and during a time where public conversation and consciousness about sexual harassment and discrimination and abuse in workplaces has moved from something that was only ever mentioned in hushed tones or or brushed over or treated like not a big deal to something that is on the front page of newspapers and that leads the nightly news. And Kate Jenkins is a really big part of that change and she has led the charge for legal reform. She has achieved it, which is no small feat. And we have had a really fascinating conversation about what's changed in Australia, how we've got to where we are, and what Kate thinks needs to happen next.
0: Kate Jenkins on The Weekend Briefing. Um, catch that tomorrow. Big thank you to the hardworking team here, our producer Eleanor Harrison-Dengate, Helen Smith, Nicole Castles, Matt Kaz-curry, our editor, and our socials team Sarah Boll and Poppy Manzi. Listener.